Hey, good morning, RCC. Pastor Ben here. So glad that you're worshiping with us today online, be it from our Facebook live service, YouTube live, or even a church online platform. We're so glad that you're here. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series called Feed Yourself. Now, before we jump into that series, I want to make you aware of three things happening in the life of our church. The first two you can find on our events page. We are uh, launching our RCC Cares Initiative. And so on Saturday, May 16th, we'll be having a drop-off day for items related to um, putting together COVID-19 masks, as well as a food drop-off. And so we'd love for you to hop on our events page now or after the service um, and uh, be aware of the things that you can grab at the stores and bring those to our church on May 16th so that we can love and serve our neighbors through this uh, season. Also on our events page, uh, we're, we're um, launching Zoom calls, Zoom hangouts with me every Wednesday at 7 p.m. for the next five weeks. And so I would love to get on a Zoom call with you, see how you're doing, check out, and uh, just to have an opportunity to connect with you and pray for you uh, as well. Our third and final announcement, you'll notice on Monday, we'll be posting to our Instagram and Facebook social media platforms, asking you to provide us your favorite mom story. And so we want you to tag your mom and tell us why she's awesome. Uh, if you do that, you'll enter in to win a drawing to win one of $200 gift cards for Copper Door. That's right, next Sunday's Mother's Day. And so we thought this would be a great way to honor our moms even while we are practicing social distancing. So as I said before, today we're kicking off a brand new teaching series called Feed Yourself, and we're going to spend six weeks looking at God's Word, the Bible. Now, I want to start off by asking you a question, and it's a funny, fun, funny question. Please comment in the section of whatever platform you're watching this service today. And here's the question. What is the worst food that you have ever tasted? What is the worst food that you've ever tasted that's ever entered your mouth? Uh, I, I grew up in the 90s, and so we, uh, I, I was in a family of uh, two other boys. My mom had three sons, my mom and dad, and so we were a pretty active family running from, you know, uh, basketball, soccer, baseball, football, so we lived off of frozen foods, and I have a few pictures that I want to share with you. Maybe this brings back some good memories or maybe some haunting memories. Some of the worst food that I've ever tasted, number one, it takes, it takes um, everybody else away, frozen fish sticks, right, by Go the company Gordon's, Gordon's Fish Sticks. Those things were absolutely disgusting to me. And no, the tartar sauce did not make it better. Uh, the second most disgusting thing that I've ever tasted is frozen chicken patties. It just, it, I don't know, it just tasted like roadkill to me. And thirdly and finally, some of the most, uh, the worst food that I've ever tasted, I don't know if you remember, this is a 90s meal. Uh, meal is a very generous word, but toaster strudels. Anybody remember those? Those things were disgusting. But hey, when you're when you're running to get ready to go to school in the morning, you just take whatever you can find in the freezer. The point being is that we have all asked this question when we ate something that we didn't like. We've all asked this, whether we thought it or shouted it out loud and maybe embarrassed ourselves or the cook. What am I eating? Like, what is this dish in front of me? And I think in, to some degree, we ask ourselves that question when approaching the Bible. Like, what is this? And maybe we do it dis 
distastefully because maybe we think the Bible is like Gordon's, you know, frozen fish sticks that we don't, we don't like the Bible. It's revolting. It's compulsive. We don't like the things that have been done in the name of religion. And so for some of us, that's why we don't read the Bible. That's why we even, maybe to be honest, we haven't even touched the Bible. But maybe for some of us, we're just honestly, we, we, we're just too busy or we don't know where to start or the Bible's confusing, and so we only ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we, we miss the, the big picture of Scripture. I found these two uh, stats real interesting, uh, at least to me this week. And the first one is this, that more than half of all American adults, 58%, Christian and non-Christian, wish that they had read the Bible more often. And how to read the Bible is one of the most uh, searched theological searches on YouTube. So statistically, <clears throat> excuse me, Americans desire, they, they, they want to read the Bible, but for whatever reason, they, they just have found themselves not actually getting to the point of opening the scriptures. I love uh, Donald Miller's quote in his book, Blue Like Jazz. He says, uh, I always thought, the Bible was more of a salad thing, you know, but it isn't. It's a chocolate thing, right? The writers of scripture describe the Bible really as a meal to consume. And God doesn't want us to look at the Bible as like an iceberg lettuce salad thing, but a delicious, decadent dessert kind of thing. So let, let's spend some time uh, today talking about the overview, sort of an overview picture of the Bible. And so let's talk about what the Bible is not, right? Number one, the Bible is not a rule book. And many of us have read the Bible through this lens or uh, have deterred us from reading the Bible because we look at Scripture through this lens. And some of us have... Um, uh, uh, experiences with the Bible as someone sort of beating us over the head with it, with a bunch of do's and do nots. Uh, Jesus in John 5, 39 tells religious leaders, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. In other words, to quote one of my um, college professors, religious people are like bad film. They're overexposed to the scriptures, but they're underdeveloped by them. They know a lot about the Bible, but they've not allowed the Bible to transform them, mainly because, and it's not true for everybody, but they look at the scriptures as a rule book to keep people in line. And Jesus is telling them, he's telling us, don't look at the Bible as, main, uh, as primarily a rule book. Look at the Bible to find me. Because scripture is about me. Secondly, the Bible is not a fortune cookie, right? The Bible is not something that, you know, we, we can crack open like a cookie and the, our fortune comes out and then we can just wishfully believe that that's going to come true. In John 14, 13, Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And sometimes as Americans and through our lens, we believe that, well, Jesus says I can ask for anything, and so if I ask for everything, he's got to give something to me. But, but Jesus isn't a genie in a bottle. And notice what he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name, right? One of the, one of the scariest and exciting questions we can ask Jesus in our prayer time is, what is your will for me? 
often we think that the will of God is the safety of God. It's not, man. The will of God is the most exciting, lively, but also dangerous place that we can be. And sometimes fortune cookies leave us inspired, right? And I just want to encourage you to think about this. More than being inspired by the Bible, we need to be redeemed by the Bible. The Bible does have a story of redemption, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Thirdly, the Bible is not an inkblot, right? The Bible is not a a picture of, maybe you've seen this of like, you know, two butterflies and someone asked, you know, what do you see? The Bible is not an inkblot in that we're not supposed to open it and read it and see for ourselves what we want to see. Now, granted, we all have a history. We all have a story. We all have a background that we bring to the text. The question is, do we allow our background to trump what we're reading in the text or do we allow the text to read us and make us question and make sense of the stuff that's happened in our lives? If we, if we look at scripture as an inkblot where we just look at it and we just take from it whatever we see from our perspective, we are going to miss the purpose and the story of the Bible. Notice Mark 7, 9, and then verses 13 through 15. He continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Jesus tells the religious leaders, you have a very interesting way of disregarding the scriptures, the Old Testament, to see whatever it is you want to see. And if your way of life your lifestyle, your traditions, right? Compromise what the scriptures say. Jesus says, you have a very interesting way of dancing around them. Isn't that true, friends, in our culture today? Isn't that true even in some churches that you sit under some preaching or some teaching or maybe a group setting and you're like, is this this person's perspective or is this actually what the scriptures teach us? Jesus goes on to say, you nullify the word of God by your tradition, by what you want to see that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of them that defiles them. In other words, what Jesus is saying, it's very dangerous to look at the scriptures to get out of it what you want to get out of it, to only see what you want to see, right? And that, I think, speaks volumes to our culture. Like, let's humble ourselves under the scriptures and let's allow the scriptures to read us before we read the scriptures and judge the scriptures in terms of how we want to see it, right? Religious moral perfection is not the purpose of the Bible, And so let's ask the other question, right? Like, what is the Bible? And there are so many different ways that we can define what the Bible is. I I like Donald Miller's uh, uh, definition of the Bible. It's not a salad thing. It's a chocolate thing. Like, that's memorable. I I totally agree with it. Uh, But to give you more of a sort of an academic theological definition, I would say, in sort of a short phrase, and of course I mean more than what this sentence is saying, is that the Bible is a collection of books written about Jesus for our good. Sometimes people think that the Bible is written about us. It's not. The Bible is written about Jesus. And as we'll show you later in our communion reflection time, 
every book of the Bible highlights the person of Jesus. One of my favorite preachers, Timothy Keller, his wife, Kathy Keller, would often tell him that a sermon is not a sermon until you get to the person of Jesus. The Bible is a collection of books written about Jesus, but it's written uh, for us, for our good, should we come to know the person of Jesus. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, on three different continents, and over, 20, uh, over 23,000 archaeological digs to confirm the truth of the Bible. So basically what I'm saying is, the Bible is a collection of books written about Jesus for our good that over 1,500 years tell the same story. All of the writers of the Bible corroborate with other writers of the Bible, and they all say the same thing. And if we don't know the scriptures, or if we're weak in the scriptures, we, we tend to miss the overarching theme of the Bible, which is about the person of Jesus, right? Even in, in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1.16, Peter writes, we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, the scriptures are a historical, reliable document that is really interested in a lot of things, but of first importance is interested in about telling the story of Jesus. So you may be thinking, how in the world can a collection of books gathered together called the Bible over 1,500 years tell the same story about a person that some of the authors didn't even know, had not even met yet? Well, watch this video clip. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except... There's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. 
And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promise king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Isn't that incredible? That over 1,500 years, all of the writers tell the same story about the person of Jesus. What I'd like to do to close out our time is let Jesus speak for himself. I always think that's a good idea, right? To kind of throw Jesus under the bus and allow him to speak for himself. So how does Jesus view the Bible? And, and, and here's the deal. People have different opinions on the Bible and people have different opinions on the person of Jesus. So as we go through this, here's my hope and prayer, okay? That you and I, according to Jesus' view of scripture, that we don't have a higher 
or lesser view of Scripture than Jesus, that we have the same view of Scripture that Jesus has. So what does Jesus say about the Bible? Number one, Jesus said that the Bible is divine in its origin, that the Bible is a divinely inspired book written over 1,500 years, guided by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus affirms this and confirms it, right? Jesus acknowledges the human authors of Scripture. In John 5, 46, he acknowledges Moses when he says, if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote about me, right? Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus says, the Torah is about me. I am the Torah in flesh walking among you. Isn't that incredible that Jesus is saying, if true, which I believe that it is, that you can put the Torah down and interact with the Torah because he's standing and breathing right in front of you. He acknowledges Isaiah. In Matthew 15, 7, Jesus says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And he even acknowledges David in Luke 20, 42, when he says, David himself declared in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus taught that God himself was the author of the Bible and that the writers were guided by the Holy Spirit. In Mark 12, 26, the text reads, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. Now that's pretty incredible because there's even Psalms, uh, chapters in Psalms that describe the crucifixion that David had never met Jesus like the disciples had. And yet he records the exact words that the Messiah will eventually say when they're crucified. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can that happen? Well, the scriptures are divine in nature, right? According to any respected theologian, but more importantly, according to Jesus himself, that the writers were guided by the Holy Spirit, even though some of the writers never even met or knew each other. Secondly, Jesus says the Bible is inspired, but secondly, Jesus says that the Bible is actually reliable, Right? Jesus often confirms and affirms that the teachings of the Old Testament when he teaches the New Testament. Right? He talks about the creation of Adam, and he uses the creation of Adam and Eve on his teachings about marriage. And you can find those in Matthew 19, 4 and 5. He acknowledges and talks about the, the murder of Abel, and you can read about that in Matthew 23, 35. And he even talks about and affirms that Noah's ark and the flood actually happened. And you can read about that in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. The point being is throughout Jesus's public ministry, he's affirming that the stuff in the Old Testament actually historically happened. And not only that, there is a purpose for those things to happen, which is to point people to the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus is praying one of his final prayers. He's praying for his disciples. And he says this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I love that statement. And when I think about that statement, and uh, you know, I'll admit, artistically, my mind goes wild. But I think about like uh, how refreshed we feel when we get out of the shower, or when we when we come out of the pool. Right? It's like Jesus saying, 
God, shower them with your truth. Sanctify them, redeem them every single time they open up the scriptures to remind them that the truth of the Bible is growing our affection and affirmation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself. Sanctify them in the truth. Because why? Because God's word is truth. Why? Because Jesus is the word of God, the logos of God. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, uh, revealed in John chapter 1, that if the Bible was untrue, what Jesus is saying, then we should not trust anything that Jesus says. But here at Rockingham Christian Church, we believe in the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was actually human and divine in the same body. And we believe that Jesus was actually telling us the truth. And so when we open the scriptures and read the scriptures, right, to find out the truth of who we are and the person and work of Jesus, we know that we are reading. We are reading objective historical truth comprised of multiple authors over 1,500 years writing to tell us this one story about the person of Jesus and the good it brings, the good it brings to those who not only read it, but believe it and place their faith in Jesus. So Jesus affirms that the Bible's divine, the Bible's reliable, and thirdly and finally, Jesus says that the Bible is fulfilled in himself. Now that is a statement, my friends. What other religious leader do you know that says you won't understand that divine book until you understand me. Jesus, to my knowledge, is the only historical religious figure that says, hey, that, that, that book that you're reading there, the, the Old Testament, the Torah, yeah, none of that's gonna make sense until you have a relationship with me. I mean, you'll see it in black and white, but you'll see it in color when you have a relationship with me. Jesus affirms that all prophecy will be fulfilled. In Luke 18, 31, the text says, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He's telling, <clears throat> excuse me, he's telling his disciples, guys, come with me. Everything the Old Testament writers wrote about, everything that you learned about, about the Son of Man, the Messiah, when he comes, it's going to be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in me. I don't know if the disciples caught that. I, I, to be honest, I don't know if I would have caught that at the moment. But what an incredible moment that the disciples were about to see that all of the Old Testament scripture was going to have its fulfillment, meaning, and purpose in the person of Jesus. Not only did Jesus say all prophecy will be fulfilled, but that it must be fulfilled. In Luke 22, 41 through 43, the writer writes, he withdrew about a stone's throw away, <clears throat> excuse me, beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Right? Jesus is in the garden, sweating so profusely that blood is coming out of his pores, asking God to take this cup of pain away from him that was going to be the crucifixion. But he knew not only that the prophecies will be fulfilled, but they must be fulfilled. And pay attention to that, friends. This is not only an act of obedience on Jesus' behalf to the Father, and it's an act of grace on your behalf as a sinner. 
And Jesus was willing to do that. He was willing to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies by going to the cross for our sin. Don't miss that. Don't, 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 don't skip over that. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, but I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Again, Jesus is saying, don't read the Bible <laughs> just for reading the Bible's sake and saying, oh, I've memorized you know, four chapters out of the book of Psalms. Like, that's good. We need to hide God's word in our heart. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But Jesus is saying, <laughs> the main lens at which we need to read the scriptures is to find him in it and allow our soul to rest in him. Jesus is saying, I've not come to say that the Old Testament's irrelevant. And maybe you've heard that, friends, from a pastor or a, a trusted Christian friend that, you know, we don't read the Old Testament anymore because, you know, it's old. We, we focus on the New Testament. Jesus says, wait a minute, no, no, no. You're missing out on so much truth and beauty and the nature of God. Like, you need to read the Old Testament. I've not come to say it's irrelevant. I'm telling you that I fulfill it. And again, you have the Torah in flesh standing right in front of you. In John 10, 35, Jesus says, scripture cannot be broken. Scripture, it's like, a, um, the, it's like the world's tightest knot. It cannot be unraveled. It cannot be loosened. Jesus' view of scripture is not only that it's true, that it just, it cannot be pulled apart. And so let me ask you again, right now, if you were being honest with yourself, is your view of scripture higher than Jesus's, right? Or is it lower? Is it higher than Jesus where you make it more about religion and behavior modification? Or is it lower where you're like, nah, Jesus doesn't really mean that about that sin or this or that or that. Or is it right in line with Jesus? I hope and my prayer is that over the next couple weeks that your view of scripture will not only um, elevate or maybe decelerate, but it would be in line with Jesus' view of Scripture, who is Scripture incarnate. Here's the fourth and final thought that I want to give you this morning, friends. Jesus addresses our deepest need. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold for, firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I've received, I passed on to you of first importance, right? The most important thing of the Bible is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, friends, the primary gift that scripture is to us is that without the scriptures, we would not know how to be back in right relationship with our heavenly father. But the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation tell us about a God that is pursuing us and loves us despite all of our sin, our hurts, our habits, even our brokenness. What is the Bible? The Bible is the most delicious meal that you'll ever taste in your life. It's a book written about the person of Jesus but for our good. Thank you.